listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WBET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Last week, Georgia, Georgia's Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff were sworn in as United States senators. While the ceremony was perhaps overshadowed by the inauguration of President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, this formality represented an important shift in the United States Senate. In short, it meant that Democrats had officially taken control of the Senate, giving President Biden's party control of both chambers in Congress. The moment also marked the first time a black man was sworn in as a senator from the state of Georgia. And Warnock was welcomed as the 11th African-American in the Senate by none other than the nation's new vice president, Kamala Harris. She was, of course, the second black woman to ever serve in the U.S. Senate herself. And the image of Harris swearing in Warnock felt really momentous. But this wasn't a moment occurring in a vacuum. It comes just weeks after a mob of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol building. So how do we make sense of Warnock's historic election amid this rise in white supremacist anger and violence and widespread attempts to disenfranchise black voters? Where do we go from here? We're going to spend the rest of the hour talking about the tension of this moment with somebody who has been thinking about it an awful lot. Theodore R. Johnson is a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice, and he's the author of When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. Johnson recently wrote a feature in the New York Times titled Raphael Warnock and the Solitude of the Black Senator. Ted Johnson, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Always good to be here. Yeah. So in in your piece, you write about Senator Raphael Warnock's election and its place in history. Why was this race and Warnock's ascension to the Senate so significant? Yeah, well, for a few reasons. Number one, since the beginning of the United States, there have been about 2,000 senators that have been elected or appointed from various states, and only 11 have been black. And between 18... Uh, the 1870s and 1960s, there were no black senators um, at all in, in the United States, despite the Civil War, despite the 15th Amendment that allowed, the 14th and 15th Amendment that allowed formerly enslaved black men to vote, and the 19th Amendment that ostensibly allowed black women to begin voting. It wasn't happening, and, and it was very difficult for black folks to ascend in political office. So Warnock's um, election is significant, not just because he was the first black senator from Georgia, not just because he was the first black senator um, from the South that was first elected to the Senate via popular vote. Tim Scott, also from the South, was first appointed to that seat Mm -hmm. before election. And uh, Warnock is just the fourth black senator from the South period to include the first two Hiram Revels and Blanche Bruce. Um, who served in the 1870s. So this breaks down barriers, knocks down doors, makes history on a number of fronts. And for all of the progress that we've made as a nation, even having a black president, um, statewide office, whether it's governors or senators, is still very difficult for black uh, uh, politicians, elected officials to ascend to. Yeah. So in talking about Warnock, you draw that line again back to 1870, the year the first Black person joined the U.S. Congress. Uh, Hiram Rhodes Revels was was his name. Tell me about 
Revel's election and how he was received by his fellow lawmakers in Washington. You, in your piece, you talk about the space that African-American legislators occupy when they go to the Congress. Right. So so Hiram Revels was uh, a minister in the African um, Methodist Episcopal Church and then a, a little bit of time in the Methodist Episcopal Church. And he traveled a lot. He wasn't born into slavery. He was born in North Carolina free and eventually moved to the Midwest, Indiana, I think, um, for some schooling uh, in, a, in a Quaker school and, and then became a minister, traveled around the country and then joined the Union Army in the 1860s during 1864 during the Civil War where he lands in Mississippi. And uh, from that time in Mississippi, he became known as a, a very smart man, very amiable man. And when the Civil War ends and Mississippi is trying to reconstruct its government in order to be readmitted to the Union, the governor that the federal government appointed there noted the capabilities of Hiram Revels and decided to appoint him as an alderman in, in Mississippi. He takes that seat, moves into the Mississippi State Legislature. And in these days, US senators were not elected by the people, they were elected by the state assembly. So elected representatives in the legislature of the state then decided who should serve as a senator in the United States Senate. And so the Mississippi State Legislature in 1870 elects Hiram Revels to be uh, a senator, and he would become the first black man to be a US senator in the nation's history. The problem is once he gets to DC, two things have to happen. First, Mississippi has to be readmitted to the Union uh, since they had succeeded and, um, you know, sort of part of the con Confederacy. And then the second thing is he has to be sworn in. So once Mississippi is readmitted on February 23rd, he's preparing to be sworn in. And then uh, Democrats who were then the home of white nationalists, white segregationists, rose in objection and said, this black man cannot be a U U.S. senator for one simple reason. In the Constitution, it says senators must be citizens of the United States for at least nine years before they are eligible to be in the Senate. Well, Revels was born in North Carolina, but he was born at a time when Dred Scott, uh, that, that Supreme Court decision, was the law of the land, which said black people could not be citizens of the United States. Could never be citizens. Could never be States. citizens, ever. Yeah. And that the white man, that the black man had no rights with which the white man was bound to respect or recognize. And so... Even after the world, after uh, Civil War ends, even after slavery is abolished with the 13th Amendment, even after formerly enslaved people are made citizens with the 14th Amendment, and even after those citizens are now given the right to vote in the 15th Amendment, at least the men, the Congress said, this is, this cannot hold. This the black, he's at best been a citizen uh, for two years from 1868 when the 14th Amendment was signed, and this is 1870. So he's got to wait at least seven years before he's eligible to be a senator. And a debate raged for three days. They eventually um, held a vote on it. Uh, the Republicans, the party of Lincoln at the time, won that vote and allowed uh, Hiram Revels to be seated. And he became the first black senator, serving about 13 or 14 months because he was elected to a special term and was then... Um, you know, his term ended and was replaced uh, by another senator uh, that was a, a white man. And then four years later, another black senator from Mississippi, uh, Blanche Bruce, um, comes to, to, to the Senate. So that argument that a black person could never be a citizen from Dred Scott 
And then the argument, even if that was the case that they could be citizens, it would only last for two, it was only two years old because of the 14th Amendment. The question of black people's place in America, the question of how fully and truly American we can be is what was at stake uh, when Hiram Rhodes Revels appears in the Senate. And frankly, we see echoes of the same discussion today. Yeah, the echoes are, of course, the massive effort in the last few months to disqualify the votes of millions, tens of millions of African-American voters as a way of asserting the idea that that Donald Trump actually won the election. If you think of the things that people have said in the last few months about what has what happened in Detroit, what happened in Philadelphia to, to draw African-Americans to the polls, to make it easier for them to vote, they echo some of these same rhetorical attacks from the 1870s. It's exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, look, it wasn't, it was just a couple of years ago where uh, Donald Trump and Stephen Miller in the White House were encouraging legal scholars to revisit the 14th Amendment and what it means and whether or not someone like Kamala Harris, whose parents were not born in the United States, even though she was, is eligible for American citizenship and thus for the presidency and, and for the vice presidency. Um, we know that Donald Trump ascended to political power by questioning the birthplace of Barack Obama, saying he was born in Kenya and not in Hawaii. So these birtherism conspiracies, these re-readings of the 14th Amendment to question the citizenship of Black people. Um, you know, John McCain was born in Panama because his father was in the military. Ted Cruz was born in Canada. Both of those men ran for president. Republicans had nothing to say about their, um, there was a little bit of controversy during the primaries, but then uh, that quickly washed away once, um, you know, once it became clear that their, uh, the fortunes of the party in some ways were tied to the fortunes of those men. So it, it's, it's really distinctive in the way that black citizenship has been questioned in our nation's history and um, in, in ways that white citizenship has sort of been, been assumed to be inherently compatible with what it means to be American and the rights and privileges of, of, of citizenship. And again, if, if we are a nation that is approaching its 250th birthday here in five years, mm -hmm. and we are still debating the citizenship of black people, the first black president, the first black vice president, the only the 11th black senator, um, he was called you know, a radical Marxist who espouses anti-American hatred and doesn't share our values. These are explicit attempts at making black senators, black presidents, black vice presidents appear something as other than American as the way of delegitimizing their candidacy and then sort of communicating a threat to American democracy that, res that results from increased black participation, both in office and in the voting uh, booths and, and at the ballot box. I'm talking with uh, Ted Johnson. He is a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice and the author of the forthcoming When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. We're talking about the historic election of Reverend Raphael Warnock to be one of two U.S. senators from the state of Georgia and what that means in the context of history. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what you make of this moment in national politics with Raphael Warnock as Georgia's first black senator and Kamala Harris as being the first female African-American and South Asian-American vice president. Do you think these things allow for the continued contemplation of our nation's exploitation 
of African-Americans. Do you think it's a point where uh, we have the opportunity to think harder about the barriers that still exist to full participation in our democracy by African-Americans? Uh, also, give us a sense of uh, what you think the conversation can be going forward about uh, all of these things. Does it make the notion of reparations perhaps more realistic? Uh, does it mean that we can talk more seriously about voting reforms that still remain undone that would make it easier and fairer for everyone to participate in elections? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Also give us a call if you're concerned about the conflict, the tension that exists between these milestones, Raphael Warnock being elected uh, a black senator from uh, the state of Georgia, and that happening just about the same time that uh, a white supremacist mob attacks the U.S. Capitol to overturn the results of a presidential election. Is it a sign of progress, that struggle, uh, or is it a sign that we still have so much work to do in this country uh, to deal with the legacy of slavery and white supremacy uh, and inequality? Again, 313-577-1019 uh, is the number on the phone. So let's go to uh, Ed in Detroit. Ed, welcome well, to the show. Stephen, the struggle continues. The fact that Senator Warnock is in the Senate is evidence of progress. The fact that there are people in this country who don't like the fact that people like Senator Warnock or the recently appointed senator from California who's Hispanic are in our national legislature and people who look like them are becoming a much larger percentage of our national population uh, is a sign that we haven't progressed enough. But I also wanted to point out there's a bit of interesting history attached to a Hiram Revels appointment to the Senate. He was sent to the Senate to fill an unexpired term of a man who had placed his affections with the Confederacy. And while there was some dispute over which of the Confederate senators he was replacing, at least the great historian at Johnson Publications argued that he was filling the vacancy left by Jefferson Davis, who hmm. left the United States mm -hmm. Senate in order to become president of the Confederacy. And uh, the, I think the, the symbolism there... Sure. That a son of Africa, who was despised in this land, takes the seat in the National Senate of the man who presided over the party of treason and disunion. Yeah, the insurrection. No question. Uh, Ed, that is a really interesting observation. Uh, Ted Johnson, respond to what Ed's talking about here. Yeah, he's absolutely right. And this is something um, I, I note in the, the New York Times Magazine article that uh, the senators in the chamber were very aware of the symbolism of that moment. You know, uh, it's it's in 1861 um, when 
Jefferson Davis gives this long speech on the Senate floor saying that I'm sorry, but I just can't stay. Um, my state is succeeding from the union and I've got to go. That's January 21st, exactly four weeks later to the date he's inaugurated as the president of the Confederate States of, of America. And the next time a senator from Mississippi walks back into that U.S. Senate chamber that Jefferson Davis vacated, it's a black man seeking to represent that state. And here we are, we fast forward 150 plus years, and there is a Confederate battle flag, the same flag that Jefferson Davis left the same Capitol building to go fight for, um, being paraded through the halls of Congress. And a man who Jefferson Davis would have preferred to be his slave, enslaved, takes the seat that he once held in the Senate. Uh, and on the day that the Confederate battle flag is paraded through the halls of Congress, one black senator, Kamala Harris, is elevated to the vice presidency. And another um, official, another politician, Warnock, uh, who was a minister like Tom Rebels was, uh, becomes the first black senator from the state of Georgia. So this is history echoing and the, the poetry is not lost on, on anyone. In fact, on the day that Revels is sworn in, one of the um, senators in the room calls it poetical retribution for the way Davis left and then the man who came to take his place. And uh, this is, this is a, a sign, as the caller said, of progress, but it is also a sign that the same battles the nation was fighting at our inception, the same battles we were fighting at the height of chaos following the Civil War, are the, those battles are still with us today, and we cannot lose sight of, of how important it is to keep the pressure on lest we, we take steps backward. We're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this fascinating conversation with Ted Johnson about black African Americans in the U.S. Senate uh, today and in the past, what significance it holds, what does it tell us about progress in America. We want to hear more from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. What do you make of Raphael Warnock being elected to the U.S. Senate? And how close are we to the equality that we have been striving for for so long in this country? Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always... Thanks very much for joining. My guest is Ted R. Johnson. He is a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice and the author of the forthcoming book, When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. We're talking about the election of Raphael Warnock, a black man from the state of Georgia who will be that state's next U.S. senator, something that has happened only 11 times in U.S. history, despite the 245 years that uh, the nation has uh, has existed. Uh, we're talking about the significance of that election, what it means now, what it means in the context of history, and what it means for the future. We also want to hear from you. What do you make of 
Raphael Warnock as Georgia's first black senator. What do you make of Kamala Harris as the first female African-American and South Asian-American to be the vice president? Do you think these things allow for contemplation for of the change that uh, that is still necessary in this country, the things that we still need to do to erase the inequality that was part of this nation's very beginning. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. We'll try to work them into the show. Uh, Ted, I want to talk a little about Tim Scott and Raphael Warnock because I think there's a really interesting uh, dynamic there. They are both African-American men. They are both now U.S. senators uh, representing states of the old Confederacy, uh, but they are also of different parties uh, and diametrically opposed in 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 many ways. Uh, talk about the interplay between the two of them. They they aren't the only black males, by the way, in the U.S. Senate. You still have Cory Booker uh, there, a senator from New Jersey. But but I think there's something interesting about about that fact that you have two black men from different parties, both representing old Confederate states. Yeah, and this speaks to the uh, political diversity, I think, that's within black America that folks don't talk enough about because uh, so many black Americans vote for Democratic uh, congressional and presidential candidates. Mm-hmm. But if you look at Tim Scott and his politics uh, compared to Cory Booker's or, or Warnock's, you'll see some similarities. So between Scott and Warnock, one of the, the most notable things is how they introduce themselves to the world when, when they give big speeches or when they're, when they're sort of making on the national stage. Warnock said after his victory, and in fact, during his campaign, that his mother used to pick cotton in, in her teen years. And when he won, he said, the 82-year-old hands that used to pick someone else's cotton are now picking their son for U.S. Senator. Tim Scott has said that his grandfather had to leave school in the third grade to go pick cotton to help Mm -hmm. the family and was able to see his grandson, Tim Scott, be uh, elected to the House of Representatives and then appointed and elected to the U.S. Senate. And Scott has said, in one lifetime, my family has gone from cotton to Congress. So both men, different parties, different politics, but both men recognize the history of Black people in the Deep South and how that history is tied to the land, tied to chattel slavery, and tied to agricultural products, especially cotton and tobacco, um, in ways that um, speak to how far the nation has come over the last 250 years, 150 years especially, and can still land people on different in different places. Now, Scott and Warnock, um, Warnock is certainly on the progressive side of the Democratic Party. Tim Scott is on the conservative side of the Republican Party. Scott votes with voted with uh, former President Trump um, more than ninety percent of the time, uh, whereas Warnock is probably going to vote with uh, President Biden more than ninety percent of the time. They differ on. Uh, decisions about school and education. They differ on taxes. They differ on on healthcare, on whether it's sort of more government uh, involvement with healthcare or less, on a number of things. But one thing that drives both of them, and I, I know Tim Scott, uh, I haven't met Warnock, but I'm familiar with his politics, is they are both interested in creating a fair um, playing field, a level playing field for Black Americans so that 
black folks, just like the, every other group in the country, can reap what they sow mm -hmm. in terms of the hard work that they put in. They want to be paid for that hard work equally. They want to be you know, hired equally, paid equally, admitted to universities equally. Uh, and so the sweat of their brow produce the same fruits that it does for, for white Americans. And Scott's idea of getting there is different than Warnock's, but the thing driving them is racial equality. Now, Tim Scott has decided not to join the Congressional Black Caucus. I'm positive Raphael Warnock will. Um, Tim Scott has talked uh, openly about being discriminated against by Capitol Police um, in, in Congress. And Warnock has talked about being arrested by Capitol Police when he was peacefully protesting um, Republicans wanting to vote against Obamacare and repeal it, something Tim Scott voted to do. So it's really interesting in the complex and intricate ways these two men's lives intersect and sort of are the, the disparate politics that they hold at the same time. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Jerry in Detroit. Jerry, welcome to the show. Uh, hello. Good morning, Stephen. Hey. hey. Um, I'd like to, if if you allow me, um, a cu couple of things right quick. Um, first, um, um, a, qu a question and then a comment, if you, will, if you allow me, please. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I was wanted to ask your guests whether or not you think the elections of uh, Kamala Harris and um, Raphael Warnock in Georgia will have any effect on um, conservative white America's racial views on African-Americans. And also the comment, um, um, as far as, um, as far as um, the views of white people towards African-Americans, um, I doubt, I doubt whether or not these, these two elections will have any effect on how how white people think and feel about African Americans, especially those who voted for Donald Trump and harbored a personal um, personal hostility towards former President Barack Obama. Hmm. Uh, so, Jerry, you you answered your own question there, <laughs> uh, but but I'm I, I really love that you called and and asked it, and and I'm eager to hear uh, Ted Ted Johnson's response. You know, I feel like we've been dealing with. Obama backlash in some ways uh, for the last four years, uh, and and the election of Raphael Warnock and Kamala Harris to me suggests that maybe that backlash is not going to to be the hangover, the long term hangover that it uh, that it seemed like it was. But but we've got about a minute left. I'd I'd love to hear your reaction to to Jerry's question. Yeah, so I I do think um, your comment is is right that. The uh, after 2012, when Barack Obama was reelected, remember the Republican Party puts out this autopsy report saying we can't win if we don't grow our tent, if we can't attract people of color. And then Donald Trump comes to the scene and they recognize, oh, we can win with voter suppression, the Electoral College, and all we have to do is win in the right places. And often, as the Trump um, sort of campaign showed, playing on people's uh, racial resentments, exploiting racial tensions was a way of increasing white turnout for Republican uh, elected officials. That turned into a winning formula in 2016 and was 43,000 votes from being a win winning formula in 2020. So there's that. The other thing I want to note here is that if you think the reaction to Barack Obama was bad, remember 2010, we get the Tea Party mm -hmm. that talks about you know fiscal austerity, but what they were really talking about is it's odd having this black man in the White House and mm -hmm. someone should do something. Just wait until a black woman 
is the tie-breaking vote in a 50-50 Senate mm. on things like Obamacare, on things like voting rights, on things like affirmative action or um, the Green New Deal. A black woman holding the keys to power for the United States will get more backlash than Barack Obama ever did. Wow. And so we are either entering an era where the Republican Party will recognize it needs to change if it wants to sustain itself, or we're entering an era where politicians are going to dig in on their racial positions. And we're the, the racial tensions we've seen over the last few years are only going to get more intense and the fire is going to get a little bit hotter. Ted Johnson, it is always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you. Happy to be here going to do it for us today we want to thank associate producer claire brennan who helped shape today's show always great to have her having her hand in our work here as well coming up tomorrow we're going to dig into truth who decides what's true is it the media government big tech we'll talk with two writers about the subject this is 1019 wdet detroit's npr station your connection to news music and conversation